Hello and welcome to Sustain. I am here at Fossey again for the second day. That's the free and open source yearly conference put on by the Software Freedom Conservancy. I'm really getting saying that down pat. Very excited about that. I'm here in Portland, Oregon in a large convention center that is soulless and mean, but happy for the people who are in it, including my guest today. I'm Richard Latour, of course, your host, and I'm sitting here with Josh Simmons. Josh, how are you doing? I'm doing great. It's good to be here. How are you, Richard? I'm doing okay. I'm doing okay. Just gave a talk. Still coming down off it, but very happy. Excellent. Josh, you've had a long and storied career. You actually, didn't you help with OSCon? Uh, yeah. So actually, my first time here at the OCC was as community manager of OSCon. And uh, so that started 2014 for me, 2015. Amazing. A lot of water under that bridge. Oh, you're here now with the community track. Do you have a talk on that? No, so I I am here as a co-organizer, program chair of the community track, community open source and practice. I say that because there is another community track that is focused on the science and research methods around community. And delighted to have been running that track with uh, Julia Ferraioli, with Monica Ayans Miron, and Stephen Kalat. But I am also giving a talk on Sunday, so it's a busy week. What's that talk? I'm giving a talk about health and safety policies in the diversity, equity, and inclusion track. So one of my side projects, I'm passionate about inclusion in all its many ways. And in the wake of a pandemic here, in-person events are huge and also come with risks. And so I'll be speaking about how can we run events in ways that minimize risk and are inclusive of people with disabilities, chronic illnesses, and those who care for them. So... I've been traveling a lot for work, which is no surprise to anyone who knows me for the past year or so. I've gotten COVID twice now traveling for conferences. Just got it like a month ago. No fun. And norovirus, although that was an oyster. It's hard to say whether that was travel related or not, but I'm really tired of it. Can you give me like the 45 second to two minute spiel of what health and safety practices are that we should be using? Absolutely. So When I think about health and safety, and I should say there are lots of elements to health and safety outside of uh, minimizing transmission of transmissible diseases, right? So there's evacuation, there's code of conduct, there's all sorts of things. But the thing that I am focused on is health and safety measures to minimize transmission of sort of airborne pathogens. So COVID, flu, colds. For so long, I think con flu has been sort of an accepted or concrud, sometimes it's called. It's like, you know, I go to the a Fosdem flu. Oh, the Fosdem flu in particular. Yeah. Infamous. And for a long time, we just kind of accepted that. But now and we have COVID and it really changed the landscape in terms of risk because every success of COVID infection degrades our immune system, makes us, puts us at risk for permanent disabilities, frankly. Yep. And so what I think about is minimizing the number of attendees who are infectious So that means asking attendees to test or possibly having a vaccination policy with reasonable exemptions. Also, so that's sort of in the minimizing the number of people who are present who are infected. I also think about just making it easy for people to get refunds Mm. or participate remotely. If I travel to Portland for a conference and I'm really excited to be here, but I find out I'm sick, if there's not a way for me to participate remotely or a way to get my refund, I might be tempted to fudge it we're all human. And so making it easy for people to just say, you know what, I know what the policies are. It's easy for me to still get what I want out of this to some degree means they're less likely to feel the need to show up even if they're infectious. So that's minimizing the number of people who come who are, could infect others. 
Then there is mitigating transmission because no solution is perfect. And that's where, you know, here we're at Fosse and uh, they have a mask policy, which is fantastic. And that goes a long way to, to mitigating risk. Other things like ventilation and active air purification. So outdoor dining, food and drink is a major time of risk. So trying to have as many events as possible outside. We're in the OCC, which has fantastic filtration, ventilation. And so this is an ideal venue for an indoor conference, basically. But so, yeah, I think about ventilation. I think about masks. I think about testing vaccines and using outdoors as much as possible really is the highlights. I apologize for my soulless and mean comment earlier. OCC, you seem to be a very nice convention. (laughs) So thank you so much. Fascinating. I want to move on to something else because I only have a limited time with you today, Josh. I know that you and Julia Ferroli, we mentioned earlier, have embarked on a new chapter in your life. Can you tell us about it? Yes. So Julia and I just launched a consultancy called Open Chapters. And the way that we think about this is we work at the intersection of social and technical systems, right? Open source is nothing if not people. So we focus on things like what are your communications, community management, doing research thoughtfully, making sure that the metrics you pick are meaningful and mean what you think they mean. Um, And then, of course, there are more run-of-the-mill open source things that we provide support for, things like release processes and risk compliance, all that joyful stuff. But really, we're trying to carve out a niche that's, that's really focused on the social side of things. Can you tell me about who your ideal clients might be for that sort of consultancy? Yeah, so... Naturally, any organization, for-profit or non-profit, that's looking to use, benefit from, contribute to open source and free software, they need help in their journey. No one organization or individual has all the information they need. And so we want to provide support for, you know, it might be a tech company or it might be a company that just happens to use a lot of technology. Now, Julia has her own emphasis. And so I think she could speak more to what sort of the ideal clients are that she's looking for. I have related emphasis where she shares some passion for as well is looking to support maintainers and community organizers and upstream institutions. Think about the foundations in open source who themselves could use as much help as possible in anything from communications to recruitment to governance to help fundraising. Interesting. Tell me how you're going to avoid falling into the community manager trap where you'll end up being the person who's responsible for every question, but also able to answer nothing. Right. So having spent many years as a community manager previously, that is definitely a trap on. Okay. Well, I will not describe the previous portion of my career as a trap. It was great, but I'm definitely ready to not be a direct hands-on community manager myself and hoping to uplift other people and empower them to step into those roles. For example, we might look to provide coaching or strategy, or we can help with the creation of educational materials to mentor new community managers into those roles. Open source projects generally don't have a lot of funding. Mm -hmm. You're looking for the sweet spot of large institutions that have open source, but haven't yet figured out how to capitalize on it. Yeah. So that is, I think, insightful. There is, I think we're looking for a mix of clients who 
maybe can help subsidize some of that work that we want to do with those who don't have the resources. When I think about open source projects that I really, I really desperately want to help, I think about the solo maintainer who is crushed under the weight of their pull requests or struggling to keep up just triaging things, let alone doing planning and community management and feature development. There's often this space early on. I like to think about a lot of maintainers as accidental leaders. Some people go into this eyes wide open, but many don't. I create something and I share it because I believe in open source and I want to help other people out. Maybe I'm resume building, whatever my motivation is, I share a thing and oh no, what if it's successful? And suddenly I am a community manager and documentarian and somebody who needs to do fundraising to build the project and succession planning. And no one person has all of these things. And frankly, by the time a maintainer realizes they need help with some of these things, often they're already underwater. And so my hope is that through coaching early stage projects, and building sort of a body of knowledge or contributing to the body of knowledge that's already out there, that we can help maintainers get ahead of this so that they're not burning out so much, so that they have the support they need. And, you know, I say all of this, and it's in a context that I think I want to make explicit. There are systemic resource disparities in open source and free software, right? Maintainers and upstream institutions are, none of them have the level of resources that they need or deserve. And yet, at the same time, free software has enabled the tech industry, among many other sectors, to just do incredible things and create a lot of value and capture a lot of value. And so my hope is to chip away at that and level the playing field a little bit because the people who make all this possible, the maintainers, the individual contributors, the community managers... Oftentimes they're being exploited in their extractive behaviors that are kind of heartbreaking. I think we've probably all seen a blog post or two from a maintainer who's just throwing in the towel because they've had it. And that's a failure mode. That's, to me, a symptom of, of a real problem in the way that we organize ourselves. So I hear you and I agree for the most part. I'm going to take a devil's advocate stance. Oh, yes. So my house has a systemic undervalue problem where no one's building a treehouse for it. I would really love a treehouse and just no one's building it. No one's showing up. I don't have the resources to fund it. I could allocate them, but like, I don't really have that treehouse I really want. And we could say that about a lot of open source maintainers where they're just really bad at expectation setting mm. and just unable to say, hey, guys, I'm doing this for free. And I, nope, don't care about your issue. And what would you say with, when you're being harsh? Because I literally ran a consultancy that's very similar to this yeah. for years. Right. So... I'm asking these questions of my past and, and former self. So it's not just about you, but what would you say to the fact that trying to actually help those maintainers is just a war of attrition against yourself and you should just tell them to just stop and you're just helping them say stop easier? Yeah, no, I appreciate this because that highlights, I think, a really important dimension of how we address this. And part of it is drawing stronger boundaries and being clearer when we set expectations. Like, I think it's very prudent for a maintainer to say, hey, I only check this once a week or on Thursdays or a couple of times a month. If you don't get a response from me immediately, that's why. 
by the way, I am maybe going through a lot in my life. And so this is taking a backseat for me. Maybe this is a project that I care about, but I don't have the bandwidth to support proactively anymore. And so I think the more that a maintainer can play their cards face up about what they are capable of doing within reasonable expectations, more permission we give to each other to just be honest and say like, hey, this is what I can do. This is all I can do. And by the way, if you care about these other things that I'm not able to do, here's how you can help. I have a whole ton of more questions. I have a lot more thoughts on this. Sounds really good. We are running up on time. So where can people find Open Chapters on the interwebs? Yes. So we are at openchapters.tech. Where can people find your health and safety policy work? That is at publichealthpledge.com. Where can people find you? That is at joshsimmons.com or if you're on the Fediverse, josh.tell. And you can also follow those links to find Julia Ferroli as well, who would have been here normally. And we hope she is doing great wherever she is. Josh, thank you so much for coming on today. It was really fun. Good luck with everything. Hope it goes well. Historically, it worked fine for me. I'm still alive, which is amazing (laughs) every day. And uh, yeah, thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me, Richard. Listeners, I hope you have enjoyed this podcast. If you're curious about FOSSI, where these were recorded, go to sfconservancy.org, to the Software Freedom Conservancy's website, where you can learn more about it. It's been really, really fun to be here and have these great conversations about free and open source software. Of course, if you've liked this podcast, please let us know. Like us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you're listening to it. Email us at podcast at sustainoss.org. Give us any thoughts or comments or queries or complaints. We would love to hear them. And of course, please tell your friends. Word of mouth is the single best way to get more listeners on this podcast. And hopefully you think that that's something we should have. If you would like to donate, you can go to Open Collective to Sustain OSS, where you can donate to the production cost for this podcast, which is not free. So that would be super, super great. And of course, you can join in the conversation yourself by going to discourse at sustainoss.org to go chat. And you can follow us on Twitter at sustainoss, on Mastodon, and I believe on Blue Sky. So thank you so much for listening and take care. Bye.